happy new year. This is one of those new years where we're all like, yes. Uh, But have you noticed, if you were one of the people that stayed up till midnight, that 1201 kind of looks like 1159 did, without being slightly glum. There's this sense of, the clock turns. What we do with the gift of life, with the gift of today is important. I'm a great believer that God in his generosity gives us time and then in his reckless, I'm surprised he does this because if I was him, I'd want to step in more. He gives us the freedom to choose what we do with it. I want to encourage you this year to make good choices with the gift that is today. I love to plan, I love to strategize, I love to dream about tomorrow, but we live with a tension that actually all we've got is today, this day. And it is a new year, and it is a new beginning, and it is a new opportunity, and I'm not one of these persons who begins with lots of resolutions, I'm going to change this, 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 and this, but I do want to say to you, may you begin this year with a hope and an optimism that isn't based on circumstances, vaccines, medicines, or, or any other benefit that may, may change the shape of this year. But may I encourage you to have the ultimate faith in Jesus, who was with us last year, who is with us now, and who will be with us tomorrow. May I encourage us to put our faith, our hope, our confidence there and there alone, because all the other system structures, parties, organizations, they're all going to miss it, but Jesus won't. So may I encourage you that if you do that, this could be a really, really good year. This could be the best year. This genuinely could be a phenomenal year for you, for me, for us. If we center our focus around Jesus. It's simple, but yet it's profound. And it's all that we need to hear and all that we need to do and all that we need to know. Let me start with a story. Uh, This was a really weird Christmas. We didn't see anyone and we didn't go anywhere. And I'm sat in this apartment that we moved into two years ago to rent for six months. And it's been a blessing. It's been a great landing place. We've met some wonderful people. The generosity of which we were welcomed into that place. It will always be a very special place for us. But we didn't expect to still be there. And we're sat there, looking around, thinking, my goodness, have two years gone? What a strange two years. You ever have that moment you think, how did we end up here? And we felt a long way from I guess the, the, the things that normally tell you, hey, it's Christmas. For everyone, not just us, those things were different. They weren't there. It was really unusual. A couple of times I felt quite down, felt quite disconnected. You start asking, where am I? And where do I belong? And where do I fit? I had a conversation with someone a few days earlier, which didn't help me because it just highlighted the fact that I'm not actually from here. You may have guessed that. And... Sometimes that's fun, but sometimes that makes me feel quite displaced. You feel like, where am I? 
Uh, I was never that kid that got lost in a grocery store. But if you've ever been in the grocery store and heard the announcement over the speaker system, it's always slightly funny. But as an adult, there's times I felt like, is this what it feels like to be that kid in the grocery store? I had this moment. And then uh, the same day, I received a message from somebody. It was a text message. uh, And it was from someone I hadn't seen for a while. And it was quite a long text message, which normally I'm not a fan of. But on this occasion, it was really good. And the message was just what I needed to hear. It was encouraging. It was affirming. Uh, It was kind. It was answering questions that the person didn't know I was asking. And it, it, it brought something of the goodness, the grace, and the love of God for the words of a person. It was just what I needed to hear. I'm telling this story because I'm going to introduce this mini-series in this New Testament book, which I've called A Letter from a Friend. And I experienced this week the importance and the value and the, the gift that is a letter from a friend. When somebody writes to you, and we don't write letters like we used to, hence the text message or the Instagram direct message, or the email, or whatever works for you. But it was just what I needed to hear. And we're going to look at this New Testament letter, which was written by John, one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And it's towards the end of his life. And he writes a letter. And it's a letter to a, a kind of broad audience. It's a circular letter, like an open letter that sometimes you might see posted online. It's written to a person with the view that many people will, will read it. It's not just one audience. And we're going to look at this. Let me give some introduction to it. So why did John write 1 John or 1 John? One of the small letters towards the back of the New Testament. That's where we're going to go. Let me give you some context I know that some really like to know the story behind the story behind the story. We like to know the fabric, the smell, the scene, the setting. What was going on when this was said? I love the timelessness of Scripture that it speaks to us today. But I also appreciate the background and the story. And when they said this, this was happening. That adds something to the flavor and tapestry. So what's going on in 1 John? It is a time... Of change, shifting cultures, worldviews, and belief, and this was seeping into Christian communities. People of faith were shaping, perhaps reimagining their faith, and John wrote to expose and to correct what was wrong and to ultimately encourage them to focus on Jesus. It's a circular letter that's written to a broad audience with the intention that we would continue to read it and be inspired by its wisdom today. The author is John, the disciple who named himself the one that Jesus loved. I always wonder how that went down with the other disciples. that He kind of named himself that. I like John. I love his writing. I love the descriptiveness. He tells a story and you can read it like you were there. He's one of the inner circle He is both passionate and loving in his affection towards Jesus, but he's also fierce and known as someone with a temper to speak out when something is wrong. He was one of the two disciples that Jesus called one of the sons of thunder. It's possible to be loving and affectionate, but still be fierce and strong, and John is both of those things. 
and when. It's written, we guess, somewhere around AD 85 to 95, after John's Gospel, probably before Revelation. And there are these subtle sentences that remind us and hint that he's probably old. It's probably towards the end of his life. He writes with affection, and he writes using this sentence, Dear children, dear children. It's this loving, not, not patronizing, but loving, affirming, I want to care for you. And it's interesting what somebody says at the end of their life. Often the things that we think are really important don't make it to the final sentences on someone's deathbed. What they say at the end often is, look, if you just remember this, this is what I want you to know. And we get some of that. So why are we looking at this today? Why 2021? The introduction I gave to the passage that from commentaries I'll read again. Why 2021? Changing times, shifting cultures, worldviews and belief. And this has the potential to seep into Christian communities. People reimagining faith. Questioning is good. Jesus always welcomed people who had questions. But interpretation was never meant to provide opportunity for us to adjust the elements that we just don't like that much. To fit God into the box that's the shape that we make. So how do we live our best year yet? I'm not one of these persons with self-help. Do this, 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 and this, and then you'll get this. But simply focus on Jesus, who is enough, who's all that we need. Before we begin with the first passage, I want to talk about this year from a church perspective. I spent some time towards the end of last year praying, pondering, seeking, and at times it felt like striving because life just comes at us from so many directions. And sometimes there's so much noise and tension and challenge and mystery. And sometimes I quite like mystery. Sometimes it's a puzzle. I can't quite put the pieces together. And I took some time towards the end of last year to kind of push it away. I had a retreat day. I went and sat on a beach. And if you've ever sat on a beach in the middle of winter, there's not that many people there. And I wanted to seek the God who says, if you seek me, you will find me. And I've been having some incredible times where I'm finding God who I know in ways I was like, oh, I didn't know that. There's so much beauty and mystery and power and revelation in this God who's bigger than ourselves, but yet who invites us into an intimate relationship with him. And I want to say this in the context of church, in the context of us, what are my hopes for this year? There's a sentence I'm going to use lots of times, and I'm going to introduce it today and, and unpack it over the coming weeks and months and then we'll get to First John. But there's a sentence that I want to say to you. My hope, my prayer, my goal, my dream is that we would see a Jesus revolution. And that's a word that we don't often use or it's a word that's been used in, in, in other areas and other ways sometimes to mean different things. And I want to explore it another time. But I'm going to say it again. 
I want us to see a Jesus revolution. This is what I mean by that. The word revolution stems from the Latin and means to turn around. Other meanings of revolution talk about a sudden, complete or marked change. A radical change in society and the social structure. Or in the biblical sense, a kingdom shift from one rule to another. This is what Jesus spoke about. This is what Jesus announced. This is what Jesus announced in the setting of the day and with this future prophetic setting that it's going to come. That it's here and it's now and it's coming. Jesus announced the new kingdom in the context of an empire and a structure and a rule. This is the way we do things. And if you fight against it, there are consequences. And we know that that led to the cross. But in that context, Jesus said, there is another way. There is another kingdom, a better kingdom. And it's the rule and the reign of God announced and made possible because of Jesus. We need a Jesus revolution. We need it. We absolutely need it. And as I've moved here, and I've been here for two years, I've noticed something. I'm really confident that we could see a Jesus revolution here. The revolution in the political sense, with the historical landscape of this setting, reminds me that there's something in the soil where revolution happens here. It's happened before. There's something in the soil here where people don't want to just be content But the idea that there's a better way, another way, a newer way, a different rule, a different structure, there seems to be an appetite for that. And as I look at the church, both in this setting and in in this region, we need a Jesus revolution. We can't go back to what we used to do and hope what once worked in the past will continue to work in the future because it probably won't. And what we don't need is better programs, systems, or or bigger budgets. Those things all help, and I'll welcome them all, but they're not the answer. What we need personally and what we need bigger than ourselves is a revolution of Jesus. And I want to explore that more. I'll make this comment. I'm not content. And when you say that, part of me feels sad because there's this classic passage at the end of Philippians in the New Testament where Paul, this significant Christian leader, says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, which is a lovely sentence. He talks about having plenty or having, having little, being in lack. I don't want us just to get by. I don't want you just to get by. I don't want us just to do church. And hope that next week will be better than last week and this week slightly better than the week before. I like that we do those things. And I want people to have a good experience both in the gathered setting and in their personal work with God. But I don't want to just do it. I want us to be changed in the way that when Jesus walked in and announced a new kingdom and a new way and a new rule and a new reign. I want that.
I want that for us. I want a Jesus revolution. I'm going to stop. Let's pray and then we'll get to the passage. This is a long introduction, I know. It's more than an introduction. It feels like this is the beginning of the year. There's some things that I want to say because they need to be said. There's some things that we need to do on the first week because what we do on the first, at the beginning, often affects where we go next. Let's pray. In fact, why don't we stand and then we'll actually get to the passage in a minute. Father, we need and we welcome a Jesus revolution. We recognize that, as has always been the case, we organize systems and structures and ways and plans, both in church and in society, and we, we ask you to fit that box. And then, like we see on every page of the Gospels, you walk in and you announce another, a different kingdom, a different rule, a different reign, with a promise that it's here and it's coming it's now and it's next lord we welcome that kingdom we welcome the rule and reign of jesus whether any other system or structure or organization will fall way short lord we pray that you change us i'm aware that every change begins with people begins with us Change us, I pray. Amen. Okay, take a seat. And in your Bible, First John. Let's have a look at this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, with which with which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us some themes in this passage it begins from the beginning if you've ever read the bible in chronological order the first passage is in the beginning was the word and the word was god and the word was with god and the word is a way of explaining jesus 
both the words that he said that proclaimed and brought about life and the person that is Jesus. Jesus was there from the beginning before Genesis. The everlasting word became the human Jesus. And true life is only found in Jesus, who was there from the beginning. In John's gospel, in John 11 and 14, Jesus said, I am the life. He's not just saying, I can give you life. He's saying, this is who I am, and in me is life. In John 1, it says, in him was, was life, and that life was the light to all people. Remember this term, light. In him was life, and that was the light to all people. Genesis, let there be light. This is going to keep coming around as we look through this passage. And the context of which life and light is spoken into is relationships. I love that Jesus was so relational. He loved people. He drew them around him. At times he would leave the people and go somewhere quiet to get away from the people. And then he would come back to the people. Relationships. Relationship with God on his alone time. He needed that. And then relationships with people. He loved and welcomed people. He didn't operate in isolation. This passage talks about the fellowship, which is a word that we don't often use that much. This letter was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for fellowship that it's used here is something that's called koinonia, which talks about a deep commitment to one another, like marriage. But this is not just between two people, but this is between a family of people. This is the blueprint for what church was meant to look like. Not an event, not a crowd, but a family where there was a deep sense of commitment. Where we don't always get along, but there's this bond that's not easily broken. That's the fellowship that this passage speaks of, that we are invited to be part of. Not to... Just be recipients of, but to be participators in. That's the fellowship that it talks about. This passage ends with something that we haven't spoken about that much in recent years. And when I say we, I mean, this is a subject that the church doesn't speak about as much as we used to. And it's the word sin. Sin is a word that has kind of fallen out of our vocabulary. And in some times, sin's been made to be fun. You can start the new year with a diet and you can't eat this and this, but you're allowed two sins a week and sin looks like chocolate cake. At that point, sin sounds great. We don't use this term anymore, but it's still there and it's still in us and it's still around us. It's easy to see it in other people, but please, before you look at other people, it begins here. It's in us. French Enlightenment writer Voltaire said, In the beginning God created mankind in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. I made the comment at the beginning of this letter that there's a warning. Don't reshape and reimagine your faith to suit your needs, your worldview, your ideas. God's bigger than your ideas. God's bigger than my ideas. Don't make something's right and something's wrong. And sometimes we do this. Sometimes you hear people say, I like to see God as dot, dot, dot. 
And then they explain the kind of God that they like and that they want to follow. God is bigger than our ideas. And I don't want to contain God to the way that it has to fit like this, look like this, and act like this. God is bigger than that. John, comfortable in the mystery of God, but yet intimate in his relationship with God, explains Jesus as this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God is light. What does that mean? I said to remember this word, Jesus, who was the word who was there before Genesis, let there be light and there was life. Life and light are essential. Without the light, there would be no plant or animal life, no growth, no activity, no beauty would be possible. All of creation owes not only its existence, but its sustenance to the God who is light and to Jesus who declared himself as the light of the world. John, who knows Jesus intimately, doesn't try and contain this knowledge that he knows it all. He says, God is light. And whilst that's mysterious, it's beautiful because light changes everything. Light eradicates darkness. Light has consequences. If you've ever been in a power cut, and you probably have, there is this moment where suddenly you can't see where you are or where you're going. Light changes that. For some people, they're beginning 2021 in the darkness. It's not meant to be like that. Jesus' light brings life. In John's gospel, Jesus, John wrote this, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Everything will be illuminated. That's wonderful, slightly scary, but largely good. Because God who brings light also brings love. C.S. Lewis wrote this. We believe the sun has risen not because we see it, but because we see everything else. Everything else. That's what light does. This passage and this idea ending with sin is a challenge for us. It's not, it's not a popular idea. In 1 verse 8, there is this denial of sinful nature. And in verse 10, there is this denial of sinful actions. We all have tendencies to do things that we know we shouldn't do or say or act. And we've all been guilty of doing things, saying things that we shouldn't have. And no one's excluded. Don't kid yourself, but take heart that the light also brings life. The illumination of this isn't to condemn, but is to redeem. Isn't to push away, but is to invite to come close. That's what Jesus is doing. There's the classic hymn that sums it up so well. 
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God is light and he brings life. And it's the best life. And it's the best way to begin every day, every year. So what do we do? What must you do? What's your response? It's possible to read this, to hear a message like this, and to nod, and to go home, have dinner, talk about it, forget it. People did that when Jesus spoke too. They walked home, they chewed on it, I like this, didn't like this. It's possible to hear hundreds of messages. I've heard hundreds of messages With respect to the people that gave them, I can't remember hardly any of them. But it's what we do with them that's important. I said at the beginning that this year, this day is a gift. What you do with it is important. My encouragement and my pleasure, my role, is to point you to God. But yet remind you that you have the freedom to choose what you do with that. My encouragement to you is that you apply what you're hearing, that you won't just be entertained or not entertained, but that what you're hearing will change you. Because the decisions that we make in the present nearly always change the future. So what do we do? As I read one, John, as I was preparing and as I was reading this, this is my response And I'd encourage you to have a similar response. Firstly, I recognize I need Jesus. And this is not just about a salvation moment that happened in the past. This is now. Secondly, recognize I I am a sinner. I don't like that word and we don't use it anymore, but it's still true. There's that nature in me and there's this action that's come out of me. And I need to recognize that with the hope And with the confidence that the light brings life, not death, not condemnation, not guilt, not shame. I need to recognize that on my knees and say, I'm sorry, please change me. That's a good way to begin. That's how we're going to begin today. That's how we're going to begin this year. Sarah's going to read something and then we're going to go into a time of communion. I want to lead us in this act of recognizing that we on our own aren't the answer our rule our reign our system isn't the solution we need his kingdom we need a jesus revolution and it starts with us sarah come and read and share what you felt from last week uh last week when we were at the beginning of our meeting and we were worshiping, it was, I can't remember what point in the meeting it was, but there was a word in my head that Adam had said, and the word was repentance. And as I was standing here, God started to talk to me, and it was really, really clear. And I felt like it was something for me, but then I also felt like it was something for us. 
And the phrase that he said to me was, it's not about behaving, it's about beholding. And it was, and it stopped me. And, you know, Adam was talking about a revolution and a revolution as a turning and repent, the word repent and repentance is about a turning around and a turning from sin and a turning to Jesus. And so what I, what I felt he was saying to us is this revolution and this repent, repentance from sin, it's, it's not about the stuff that we're doing and it's not about doing better stuff and stop doing bad stuff. It's about turning and looking and beholding Jesus because once you behold Jesus and you look at him and not just glance but actually look when you turn and look at him sin looks gross it just looks disgusting and you don't want to do all that stuff anymore so that was that i'm going to i'm going to read from isaiah and it's chapter 53 If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just close your eyes, or you can just listen. I'm going to read part of it. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus stepped in. to bring true life 
to us that no other kingdom was ever going to be able to deliver. And he paid the price and he made it possible. I want us to respond to that. That's how I want us to begin this year. It's going to be clunky because this is communion during COVID, which means we've got clinically cleaned plastic containers that are tricky to peel. But I want us to put that to one side. I want us to put the masks out of our mind and the social distance. I want us, if we can, to get on our knees and to receive and to respond. So I'm going to ask Tara to pass these around. If you're at home, if you've got juice or wine or bread or whatever works for you, please get it at this time. While that's been handed out, I'll say this. Sarah told me that word last week about the importance of beholding. And I, I wanted to look at that word. Where, does that, where do we find that word? And those of, some of you may be familiar. John the Baptist, who begins his ministry by pointing to Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he points to Jesus. Most modern English translations do not use the word behold. It's kind of outdated. They use the word look. If you've ever looked at the original language, the truest translation is this slightly old-fashioned word, behold, which means to look and to cling to, to look and to not cease looking to. So may I encourage us as we begin this year by looking and not ceasing to look to Jesus, who is light, who is life, who is the answer, whose kingdom we need more than any other kingdom. May we behold Jesus the King. If you're able, and Rox and the musicians are going to play quietly and then lead us in some singing in a a moment. If you're able to, I want to encourage you to receive this in your own way. We do this together because there is the power of corporate community and fellowship, koinonia, as we've read. But there's something intimate and individual about the fact that all of this begins as an individual choice. If you're able to, why don't you get on your knees? It feels a good posture to begin. If you're not able to, that's fine. No one's looking, no one's watching. If you need to move, there's so much space. (laughs) Take it. You peel the top off and you get to the wafer that represents the body of Jesus and then you pour the second seal off and you get to the juice, the wine that represents the blood of Jesus. This is the gift that he offers. This is all that we need. There is no, that's a good beginning, what comes next? This is, this is all of it. This is where it begins. And receive the gift that Jesus offers you and then in a moment we'll, we'll worship and we'll pray. This isn't just the transition moment. This is the moment. This isn't just something that we do on the way to something else. This is the most important thing that we do. We receive the gift that is Jesus.